You're listening to ABC News Radio. Welcome to the Weekly Post, where we take a look back at some of the stories making news this week. I'm Cathy Niven. First, some headlines. The swimming saga continued this week with Aussie Shana Jack testing positive to a banned substance. She faced a meeting with the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority to try to clear her name. Liberal Vice President Karina Ocatel says she's ashamed by reports that party officials may have ignored sexual assault allegations. She says the party is now working on a code of conduct to improve its procedures. I am ashamed that there might be senior officials who might have told people um, who have come forward to say that they've experienced sexual violence to um, just let it go. That's appalling. But I don't believe that any person, any doctor, any parliament has the power today to declassify another person as less than human and by so doing, removing their most fundamental right to be alive. That was former Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce who criticised moves to decriminalise abortion in New South Wales. Mr Joyce there was referencing his baby son Tom, arguing he had a right to be born. And Channel 9 and its newspapers aired numerous allegations about Crown Resorts, claiming it had links to organised crime, fast-tracked visa applications and money laundering. The federal government referred the matter to the Australian Commission for Law Enforcement Integrity, while Crown took out full-page ads in many Australian newspapers defending its conduct. More stories coming up. It was widely predicted, but the US Federal Reserve this week delivered, cutting official interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point. It's the first reduction in a decade when the Fed was slashing rates at the height of the global financial crisis. The move also points to further rate cuts here in Australia. Evan Lucas from the financial forecasting firm InvestSmart says the US central bank has responded to a raft of international as well as domestic pressures. What they are alluding to, what you listen to and what Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, spoke about last night is that he is talking around the global slowdown and basically insulating or at least being ahead of the curve, in their words, of a possible spread over into the US. And why I say that is that he points out very clearly, and rightly so, US GDP growth was just below their expectation. It's just on or above their trend. If you look at their unemployment numbers, their unemployment rate is at the lowest it's been in almost 50 years. And overall employment growth, although it's not as strong as last year, it's still well and truly meeting their mandate. And wealth creation is still very, very strong. So the US economy overall, one would argue, is, is reasonable. But he is very aware they haven't reached inflation, which is 2% for their target, but also the global slowdown. What he doesn't want to see is these 10 years of economic growth that's been going on in the States starting to actually, you know, be impacted by what's going on globally and therefore getting into his way because they have obviously increased rates since December 2015 mm-hmm. to where we were before last night um, by eight times. The central bank, of course, uh, it raised interest rates only in December. Mm-hmm. This is a fairly rapid turnaround. I mean, you've just given some explanation as to why that's the case, but it, uh, it, it, does it suggest a sort of a lack of confidence in-house about uh, the outlook for the US economy? Uh, it does, absolutely. Uh, and you, you're right. I mean, who would have thought? I mean, December last year, in fact, even as, uh, as late as January this year, the Fed was still forecasting, according to their dot plots, three possible rate rises in 2019. 
um, and how fast that has changed to actually see a cut for the first time in ten and a half years. And that cut actually was, um, sort of ends the second longest period in their history to actually seeing them not cut rates. The other thing about the Fed, they watch a lot of indicators very closely. In March this year, there was a lot of red flags that would have come up across them. They do watch their bond market very closely. It's been very heavily reported about the inversion of their curve, which is where the three-month yield was actually higher than their 10-year bond. Um, and that has been a very, very strong historical reader for possible future recession inside sort of 18 to 24 months. So it's basically forecast a recession in the States over that period almost 96% of the time. So he, he is aware that there is slowing down. But as you alluded to, consumption in the US is still driving, consumer confidence is still driving things forward, and overall employment is... But there are just some signs that he is seeing some slowdown. And as he alluded to, he wants to be ahead of the curve on that. There are, as you say, a number of factors um, internationally as well as domestically. Um, but there's also the suggestion that um, perhaps they've reacted to some extent to this constant badgering from President Donald Trump, who, mm -hmm. who's been overtly campaigning for a rate cut. Has the, the Fed bent to some degree to political pressure? question. I would suggest not, but it is unprecedented, as you alluded to. I mean, it is not in the post-war era, no sitting president, either side of the House, has done what the president, the current president is doing. To be that, on, that prominent, that open around his dissent, around what the Fed is doing, it is certainly something that comes into their overall talk and their overall thought process. Um, you then have to look at it from the point of view that if you already look at what happened today with regards to the Fed only cutting by 25 basis points, the president came out almost instantaneously and talked it down, suggesting they're not doing enough, that it needs to be harder, that they should have gone 50 basis points and that they are actually creating a drag on the US economy and therefore, in his words, making America great again. So it will be a theme. Do make no mistake around all the way run through to November 2020. It is part of his presidential re-election campaign is the economy. And that is something that he, he wants is that if you were to create lower levels of, of basically monetary policy, increased stimulus, asset prices we know will run. And the States is a very good example of, of what's that's been happening. Mm. The market itself has shown you that it run up very, very hard into this meeting on the idea that they could go hard and cut things quite strongly, signal a longer-term sort of trend in, in cutting rates because asset prices get supported by, by that kind of pricing. So it will not stop, and you can already see that it's going to be a, a fairly contentious point the president is going to use in his favour, inverted commas, mm. for his political gain. That was Evan Lucas from the financial forecasting firm InvestSmart speaking to News Radio's Scott Wales. Longer commute times, higher childcare costs and stagnating incomes. They're just some of the findings of the latest survey into household income and the labour market in Australia. The Hilda survey from the University of Melbourne has this week found there's been no increase in household income since 2012. It also revealed poverty has increased slightly in recent years. Marion Baird is a professor of gender and employment relations at the University of Sydney. She told me on News Radio this week the pressures of work-life balance are getting worse. These figures are not very promising and um, they do suggest that we're in, in very difficult times. There's sort of a sick society at the moment. And one of the issues is the expense of childcare. It has been an expense and, and a pressure for parents for quite some time. Are people having to work longer and longer just to cover these costs? 
Yes, I mean, it's difficult from just the raw data to know what the causal relations are there, but a couple of things do seem to be contributing to it. Increasing employment rates of women, of course, means that there is a need for more childcare. Longer commute times also means a need for more childcare. And other factors in the report suggest that just the cost of childcare itself has increased. So these are all difficult um, issues. And families are having to somehow balance all of this. You mentioned that there are a lot more women in the workforce. Do you take that as a positive? Well, it's... um... This is a problematic area, really. It's positive if the women want to go to work and are in good quality jobs. But what we also see in these results, these HILDA results and, and other labour market data, is that women are still working um, mostly in part-time jobs and that their incomes are significantly lower than men. So we're, I think what we're seeing is much more segregation in the labour market and women are not getting the prime jobs. As you mentioned, a lot of them are in part-time jobs. Does it matter what sort of industry they're in? It does. Industries, there are quite substantial differences by industry in Australia and the industries that women tend to locate in are those that are heavily service-based and government-funded. So um, either retail or health and education. And all of those industries have either tight profit margins or very low levels of increase in government expenditure. So you end up with these situations where women find it very difficult to get wage increases and where the industries are very high pressure. Professor Baird, what about the younger workers? Are they having to change jobs more and more and put up with lower income jobs and insecurity? Well, that is a pattern that we've seen in Australia for some time and that seems to also be reflected now in that more young people of working age, that is having left school but and university but in the labour market, are also staying at home and living with their parents. So we're seeing not only a shift in their opportunity in the labour market but also a shift in where they can live and what choices they can make. And what about men? What about yes. their employment? Well, this is also interesting. For many years um, I've commented on the, the reduction in men's employment rates and I think this is a bit of a, a silent issue in Australia and one we must be examining more closely. Um, as, as economies restructure and industries focus on more service sectors, we do see a shift in men's employment. And one of the things we've seen in Australia is a decline in men's employment. That's been going on for 40 years. So there is a need to really pay some attention to that as well. Is that blue-collar work? Mostly it will be blue-collar work or work that we would have thought was sort of traditionally male's work with restructuring of industry, the decline in manufacturing and mining in a sense because it's so automated and the rise in sectors that seem to attract more women or employers prefer women. It's always hard to know which way that, that's going in a labour market. Um, there's less opportunities for men. And what about the other end of work life? What's the survey show about retirement incomes? Yes, well, it shows some interesting things that certainly women in their older women um, have the lowest incomes and that is a concern because we know that we they have less access to superannuation, housing becomes a problem. At the other end of the life expectancy and I haven't had a chance to read the full report in detail but we also know there's increasing pressure on men and women but particularly women with um, elder care responsibilities so we, we not only have the child care impact happening in the sort of 30s to 40s of women's lives. We've now also got the elder care issue coming through quite strongly. Marion Baird, a Professor of Gender and Employment Relations at the University of Sydney, speaking to me, Cathy Niven.
The Australian Council of Social Service is maintaining its opposition to the cashless debit card. It comes amid continued calls for an increase to the New Start allowance, which ACOS has long argued is way too low. People who receive New Start are effectively living on just $40 a day. Now the National Party has proposed that an expansion of the cashless debit card could form part of a New Start increase. ACOS Senior Advisor of Social Security, Charmaine Crow, explains why they're against it. The cashless debit card at its heart is designed to control people on very low incomes. Uh, and in this case, it's simply because they haven't been able to find a job. Uh, it is a grossly unfair policy. It's also really impractical, um, but it, you know, critically, it's it's really demeaning. Uh, it's expensive, and it's also unproven. So there is very little to like about the cashless debit card, and we really see this as being a distraction from the real need, which is to increase new staff. Would ACOS support a cashless debit card if it formed part of an increase to the new start allowance? We think that new start, increasing new start should be um, dealt with on its own. Uh, it's been 25 years since we've seen a real increase to the payment and people have fallen far behind community living standards as a result. Uh, the survey that we released today about how people managed to get by on the payment is shocking reading um, and you know the fact that people are going without food, Uh, Most people have to skip meals to get by week to week. Uh, People are reporting that they're showering once a week just to save money on electricity. So rather than discussing cashless debit, um, we need to be, um, the government needs to urgently act and increase these allowances to ensure that people can put food on the table uh, and put their best foot forward when they're out there trying to get paid work. The former National Party leader Barnaby Joyce last week came out in support of an increase in New Start. Now he's given a newspaper interview saying that despite his salary of $211,000 a year, he has his own financial struggles. I'm not skint. I'm far from skint. I'm on a very, very good wage. But of course, uh, circumstances, my own fault, it means it's spread thin. And of course, I'm working out on a very, very good salary how you, you make two ends meet when you're you know, supporting basically two families. God knows how someone on 280 bucks a week ever gets by it. Charmaine, do you think his contributions to the discussion around New Start assist the ACOS campaign to increase the allowance? I think what Mr Joyce has done in the past couple of weeks is really highlight how you just can't get by on $280 a week. Um, we know, particularly in rural and regional Australia, extremely difficult for people to get by on New Start. Um, you think about trying to run a car, which you absolutely need if you live in a regional area to get paid work. Uh, you just can't do that on less than $15,000 a year, which is the New Start allowance. Um, so there are, there are more than 800,000 people out there trying to scrape by on these allowances, going without heating and cooling in the summer, um, going to bed early to stay warm, uh, and yet we're expecting these people to be getting out there and getting paid work as soon as possible. It's just not, it's not reasonable to expect people to be, um, you know, putting their best foot forward when they're spiralling into a situation of debt and deprivation. And that's why the government needs to urgently increase these payments by a minimum of $75 per week to help people get through tough times. ACOS Senior Advisor of Social Security, Charmaine Crow, speaking to News Radio's Maddie Presland. 
Returning to the United States and the former Vice President Joe Biden has again been targeted during a debate featuring 10 candidates who want to get the Democratic Party's endorsement to challenge Donald Trump for the presidency next year. Kamala Harris and Cory Booker were pointed in their criticism of the man considered to be the frontrunner in the candidate's race when they were sparring with him in the nationally televised event in Detroit, the second televised debate this week. Julia Manchester writes for the political website The Hill in Washington, D.C. We kind of saw a continuation from the last debate when it comes to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris was really able to catapult herself into the top tier of candidates during the first debate when she went after Joe Biden. And she continued to go after Joe Biden today. And you saw that the other candidates on stage also went after Joe Biden. I mean, you had candidates of all tiers going after him because he's the front runner and they're really looking to emulate Kamala Harris's success. I think um, the most successful candidates were do- in doing that were Harris and Cory Booker. Cory Booker is someone who has continuously struggled in the polls and to garner you know, a lot of good fundraising numbers. So he was able to very much skillfully go after Joe Biden. You know, Joe Biden and him has sparred on issues of criminal justice reform, and he was able to very much hit him on that. He was also able to very skillfully go after Joe Biden for constantly bringing up former President Obama into the conversation. You know, Joe Biden has gotten a bit of flack, if you will, for constantly invoking his record with Obama. And, you know, it's kind of very much a defense mechanism, if you will, because Obama is the most popular figure in the Democratic Party by far. But you saw Cory Booker say, you bring him up more than anyone on the stage. You can't have it both ways. So I thought that was very notable. But the big takeaway from tonight was everyone piles on Biden. And Biden, you know, I would say had a stronger night than he did during the first debate last month. But he wasn't necessarily on his A game. He lacked that consistent consistency. Out of all the candidates from last night and tonight, the candidate that has by far the most consistency is Elizabeth Warren. Now, a feature of uh, last night's debate was the fact that it seemed to be the moderates versus the the left-wingers. Was that continued in any way, shape or form? Not necessarily tonight, no. Maybe a little bit when it came to the issue of Medicare and Medicare for all. Obviously, Joe Biden, for example, is very much for not Medicare, but for continuing Obamacare, which has that option for a private um, insurance option. And you saw, you know, I think a little bit of back and forth on stage, but I don't think that was continued tonight because the two major progressive heavyweights in the in the race, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, were last night. Tonight, it was more about, I would say, a more maybe a generational battle, if you will. I mean, Joe Biden, a man who is in his 70s, has been a fixture of American politics ever since the 1970s. You know, he was standing between some of the more younger U.S. senators, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, and they're relatively new U.S. senators, especially Harris, who was elected just to the Senate in 2016. So I think it was more of a generation battle tonight than it was centrist versus progressive. A lot of commentators have observed that uh, the Democratic Party is lurching to the left. Is Was that apparent from what you've seen of the two debates? Um, it depends what debate you were watching and it depends who you were watching in the debate. I think there was definitely both debates debates, especially the first night, revealed this internal struggle of the Democratic Party of whether to go in the more progressive direction or in the more moderate centrist 
direction. You know, you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, especially Bernie Sanders, who are pushing Medicare for all and more government involvement in, you know, healthcare and economic initiatives. However, you're, you're seeing more moderate candidates such as Steve Bullock from Montana, for example. He's a Democrat who was elected governor the same year that President Trump was able to win Montana, which is a very deeply red Republican state. And he essentially said, you can't win states like mine with that kind of rhetoric. Um, and you're seeing other candidates like Tim Ryan from Ohio and even Joe Biden tonight. You know, he is very much more of a moderate centrist. They are trying to push this idea of you can't go all the far, all the way to the left because you're going to miss out on getting more moderate independent voters or maybe some voters that may have voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 but flipped for Trump in 2016. Julia, what is the next step? It's a whittling down process, isn't it? Uh, you've had 20 candidates. What does the party do after this? Well, I think that's the question everyone is asking. So I think this debate could be a major milestone for a lot of candidates. And I think you'll see some candidates, um, namely maybe a governor, a former Colorado governor, John Hickenlooper, you know, I could imagine he could potentially be talking to his staff and saying, okay, where do we go from here? You know, we're not seeing any gains in polling or fundraising. Do we actually want to stay in this for a while? But you're seeing some candidates that you wouldn't expect, such as businessman Andrew Yang. I mean, he announced that he had qualified for the third Democratic presidential debates in September earlier this week, but then the Democratic National Committee said he didn't actually qualify. That was Julia Manchester, who writes for the political website The Hill in Washington, D.C., speaking to News Radio's Steve Chase. Celebrity chef George Columbaris broke his silence this week, saying he takes full responsibility for underpaying his workers. Columbaris claims the underpayments were due to a lack of sophistication in the back end and not having the proper infrastructure in the background. The Fair Work Ombudsman found the former MasterChef judge underpaid staff a total of $7.83 million between 2011 and 2017. Orla Belfray used to work for one of Columbaris's Melbourne restaurants. She's now an organiser with Hospitality Workers Union Hospo Voice. She spoke to News Radio's Glenn Bartholomew, who started by asking if she'd been paid. No, he hasn't, actually. Um, and I have plenty of friends and ex-co-workers that also haven't been backpaid. I thought that was the story, and I was a little surprised to hear that sweeping comment last night that he'd paid it all back and it was all sorted. Not the case? No, not the case at all. What do you make of the uh, reason it all occurred that he's offered? Do you buy his suggestion that the underpayment of staff was all due to a lack of sophistication in the back end? Oh, no, I disagree with that as well. I, I just think, like, there's two ways that these underpayments um, occurred, both of which aren't sophisticated. Firstly, you've got um, people that worked hours that weren't paid for those hours. That's not sophisticated. Um, and the second one is just about classification of people's skills. And if that's too complicated to work out, like in many other industries, you just get people in that know about it and you sort it out. He says they had no people and culture manager. There was no elite finance team like we have now. Yeah, well, I've worked in small businesses, um, family-run businesses, the one I'm working at now, and I'm better paid, and that is with no sophistication. That's with one or two owners pretty much doing the payroll between them and an accountant, and I'm getting paid properly. So I don't think that's the case at all. You worked at his Hellenic Republic restaurant in Melbourne. What was your experience? How did the discrepancy come about or be revealed? Um, well, experience was mixed. Obviously, it was um, lovely working there. Um, 
and great people. Uh, and the discrepancy came about, I was both misclassified for my skills and what I'd um, trained in and then also um, haven't received appropriate back pay for my overtime hours as well. So you're still um, owed, what, a couple of thousand dollars? Yep. Does Mr Colandaris deserve some credit for, as he claims, self-reporting the incident? Uh, I, I disagree with the fact that they self-reported as well. Um, for my understanding, it was uh, an employee from the press club back in 2015 that reported an underpayment to Fair Work. Fair Work asked them to do a full review of anyone at that restaurant on the payroll, um, and they didn't report anything that year. And then the next year, um, they came out and said, oh, maybe there's been some discrepancies. So that's not a self-reporting case here in my opinion. It is a very large amount, about $8 million. It's not like you've messed up a couple of payments. Do you accept his apology that he's made to staff? No. I've got, well, as you know, I said before, I haven't received my back pay. I've got plenty of friends and ex-co-workers that haven't received their back pay. So I, I'm not, I don't really feel comfortable accepting an apology when I don't feel like anything or it hasn't resolved yet. You mentioned uh, that feeling amongst other colleagues as well. From what I can tell, social media is still pretty polarised on this. Uh, Some people buying it and other people still having a negative attitude to him. Is that fair to say that uh, some of the people who've worked for him don't seem to be accepting his uh, contrition campaign, as it's been dubbed? Oh, absolutely, because they're in the um, same boat as I am. Um, And, yeah, it's not. um, it it just feels disingenuous, um, probably at the best. Are you satisfied that he's been fined uh, $200,000? No, absolutely not. Um, that uh, contrition payment was is um, less than the interest that he would have made on the money that he did pay to workers and is also less than 2% of that overall um, figure um, of $7.8 million. So I just don't think that is an adequate punishment or fine at all. He's accepted responsibility, says his place now is in his restaurants working with his staff, who he says he adores. Do you think he can be a voice for change in the hospitality industry, as he now says he's hoping to be? Well, I definitely don't feel adored as a ex-staff member. Um, and again, you can't really... Um, I, don't, I don't believe that you can be a force for change when you haven't resolved everything yet. Um, so... Uh, no, I don't really accept that. At this time, that doesn't mean he can do. He can't do something in the future, but this needs to be fully resolved before he can be a force for change. Lee Sales did ask him whether this was just a, a sample of what's going on in the industry, that this isn't a more systematic problem or systemic problem that needs to be addressed. What's your experience? Yeah, he dodged that question. Hey, um, absolutely, it's systemic. Um, all the Fair Work Ombudsman um, found that uh, about 72% of hospitality workers are underpaid. Um, the union that I volunteer for found that about the, a, a similar figure. This is completely systemic. Um, and I think that it's important to take not, not put all of this limelight on George to actually just go, this is across the industry. We don't need to hear about his personal emotional experience. Um, we can actually just focus on principles and the laws. All of Bill Frag speaking to News Radio's Glenn Bartholomew. That's it for this edition of the Weekly Post. I'm Kathy Niven. Bye for now. abc.net.au slash newsradio. Get your news now.